listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by ancient philosophers of Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. This is episode 95, Kai Whiting on Vegetarian and Vegan Eating. Kai is a researcher and lecturer in sustainability and Stoic philosophy based at UC Louvain in Belgium. He tweets at Kai Whiting, that's K-A-I, W-H-I-T-I-N-G, and blogs at stoickai.com. His newest paper is titled, How Might a Stoic Eat in Accordance with Nature and Environmental Facts? We last met at Stoicon 2019 and continue our conversation today. On with the episode. All right, welcome back to the show, Kai. Now talking about your newest paper, How Might a Stoic Eat in Accordance with Nature and Environmental Facts? Welcome back. Thank you for having me, Justin. We're recording at the end of July. We last met in person in Athens, Greece for Stoicon 2019, and now travel is mostly at a standstill. Absolutely. Even here, we've been locked down twice. We've had two episodes now here in uh, Portugal because we decided to open everything up at the same time and then wondered why that was a bit of a challenge to maybe the health system. So yeah, even in Europe, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit different, a bit difficult. But much unlike the ancient Stoics, we're still able to keep going and connect here over Zoom as we're using today, and you're still publishing online. So what led you to write your new paper? Um, I think that people have a misunderstanding sometimes because of the prevalence of certain, uh, I would say, types of Stoicism or certain interests in the Stoic community that the most basic things that we can do in life, like eat and buy clothing or travel, uh, from one place to another in, in within our locality is something that's not particularly important to Stoicism because it's about, I don't know, business sense or the bigger picture or, or some kind of how do I become a better person? And we see it in a very sort of zoomed out way. Like how do I make either we go to nothing is in my control, I can't do anything, or let's make the world a better place and think about it from a communal perspective. And actually the Stoics were very, very interested in what we do on a day-to-day basis like they want your consistency and coherence and we consistently eat like most of us i would say not all of us but most of us in the western world eat between two to three times a day some of us eat maybe four or five because we like smaller meals so it's strange that there was like this sort of hole i I felt in the the contemporary stoic movement where nobody really went into depth about what one should eat even though we literally decide three times a day what we're going to eat and what we're going to buy so particularly at the moment in a in a COVID-19 scenario most of our money in the west is going on food because a lot of our entertainment Mm. has just as you said we can't be we have to entertain ourselves we not really can go out anywhere so food becomes even more important and during the COVID situation the early stages in the U.S. and in Europe uh it was really, there was some restrictions, and I believe that the U.S. still has some restrictions on, on meat items. So I think it's a really interesting time to to rethink how we see ourselves and see ourselves in, in line with uh, nature and animals in general. Right, and we talk about this idea of control and stoicism, what's inside and outside of our control, and perhaps with these pandemic restrictions, we have more control over the situation as we're going to the grocery store more often rather than eating out. Of course, we're not traveling as much, so maybe easier in these times to have a healthier diet while, of course, not putting on some weight by just being home and not exercising. But that's a a topic for another day. So yes, I've been able to make adjustments by going to my local grocery store. Usually breakfast is a 
a vegan shake as I have uh, protein powder with greens combined with almond milk and oats and a banana. That's usually my breakfast. And for lunch and dinner, I have a rice cooker meal where I have different kinds of rice, jasmine rice, basmati rice, tofu, carrots, mushroom, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. I'll change the produce every so often. And uh, it seems to be pretty easy for me to keep up with that by reducing or even eliminating animal products in my diet. I think you're absolutely right. Like, I, because of this COVID situation, a lot of things that we took for granted, we no longer do so. And food was one of them, particularly early on when people decided to go crazy and buy all the toilet roll up as well as all, everything, I think. <laughs> yes. So I, I think the idea of being local as well has become come at the forefront because we can no longer rely on these very complex food supply chains. So I think it should be at the forefront of people's mind. I know a lot of people who have been more interested in cooking because, you know, they don't want to eat the same thing every day and used to go to you know lunch out and now they cannot but i i do think that it is interesting that there is sort of this realization that perhaps uh, considering uh, some of the theories behind why covid happened in the first place that our maltreatment of animals and nature generally if not the, the primary cause is certainly one of the secondary causes of course you know we don't have all the evidence but it certainly does seem to point that way that if we are more careful about how we our food, store our food, hunt for food if we have to hunt, what kind of food we eat. That that has all come to the forefront of, of this problem. Like where does this come from? So I, I it was very serendipitous for me in that sense that this has become an integral conversation. And it's not a very popular conversation because it's hard. I mean people do feel that it's a very personal decision. Like food is very personal. It's cultural. It can be political. Even Seneca had to became vegetarian and had to give it up for a political reasons because his father was worried about the fact that vegetarianism was associated with uh, non-Roman influences. So you can see there that even though he realized it was healthier for him and he says that he could think better, he ended up giving up to appease his father and to pre present you know, a, a good as a good senator for Rome eventually. I imagine if he'd continued it, they would have doubted him as a senator and they'd say he didn't have the public's best interest at heart. And you can still see this now. It's quite funny that when you, you cut down your meat consumption or you become vegetarian or vegan altogether, uh, so you cut it out altogether, people then say, oh my gosh, where do you get your protein from? Oh my yeah, gosh, yeah. you're going to die. <laughs> it's very hyperbolic, right? Um, just wanted to ask you, like when you first started to cut down meat and then then uh, forgo it altogether, did people suddenly get worried about your health and never been worried before? When I was making that transition, I was also exercising a lot more. That it wasn't just an eating thing; it was a focus on overall health. And I, oh, I hope that you don't lose too much weight. Or yeah, how do you get the protein? This and that. But adding some supplements, adding different foods. It's certainly not the case that it only comes from meat. But I guess people just have the ideas, or perhaps they're just interested in defending the position that they already have, rather than taking the position of, oh, what should I do, or looking into other approaches. I was vegetarian before I became stoic, but I wasn't, I wasn't vegan, but I've moved, not because I, I moved towards that direction. So I'm still pretty flexible with vegetarian versus vegan diet, but I've decided, for example, as I claim to want animals to live according to nature, to decide, you know, to say, well, milk is not Milk is not a good example for me to, to use when people see me walking around with a milkshake with cow's milk. And I say, oh, all animals should live according to nature. And then these cows are like shut in. They are restricted to, you know, from moving from having any kind of uh, good life, from whatever that means for a cow, but certainly doesn't mean being locked or caged or um, separated from their young so early on to the point I've seen like cows who literally cannot 
they have to make around their neck so they're not allowed to drink from their own mother, which causes a lot of stress. And then I realized that how can I say that we should live according to nature and then drink milk from a commercial farm, which doesn't care about a calf living according to her nature, nor the mother living according to her nature, and actually destroys the very bond that we say is integral to animal development, archaeosis. So we're basically destroying that bond of taking care of oneself and then taking care of others, right? So I, I just couldn't be a stoic and then claim that we should all live according to nature and then go and do something that was so grievous uh, indirectly to another sentient, sentient being. So I did reduce my milk intake and as much as I can when I go to say drink a coffee is to ask for a, like either a black one or oat milk or a soy alternative. That was something that really shocked me. Mm-hmm. I was claiming one thing and then like literally putting milk in my coffee. And it seemed, seemed so ridiculous that I would claim something and then do something that meant nothing, almost like this much milk, a very small amount of milk would mean absolutely nothing to me. And yet mean everything to a calf and her mother. Right. So some adjustments there and you're able to get those substitutions in pretty easily, especially if you're just uh, drinking the coffee at home or preparing your own food and on the go, at least here in the States, I can find almond milk in many places. Unfortunately, they'll charge for it. Uh, But in that case, if I don't want to pay, I can just uh, say put Splenda in it and give it some flavor. So there are a lot of alternatives or substitutions there. So it doesn't seem to be the Herculean effort that some make it out to be, oh, it's going to be impossible to avoid. Or as you talk about in the paper, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing, especially when you're just starting out, you can make some gradual changes, right? Yeah, I give this example, like imagine I go to somebody's house and I know they're anti-vegan or anti-vegetarian and they offer me a tea, right? And I, I only drink tea black, but let's imagine that even that would offend them, right? They really want to give me the, the best tea in the world. And for them, that means like tea, which is sugar, is the milk. I might say, well, yes, I, I want to give them, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt in their own house. So I might just drink the milk in the tea because I'm in their own, I'm in their house. They're trying to be kind. They're pretty close-minded. Uh, whatever I say is just going to cause an argument. And really, I'm just visiting them to make sure they're okay because they were quite lonely. For example, they're stuck in, they can't go out. So I just want to be like, you know, how are you, neighbor? I'm so glad you're doing well. How's your daughter? I know she lives 300 kilometers away or 300 miles away. I'm just popping in to see if you need anything. What do you need? Oh, could you go and get me that milk uh, when you go to the shops next week? I'm going to go. I'm not going to go. You know what? No. Uh, I'm going to say, okay, of course I'll buy you the milk for you because that's what you need. And oh, thank you so much. Here, have a cup of tea. I'm not going to turn around and go, well, Thank you for your hospitality, but I don't agree with anything you just did there. I'm in their home. They're trying to be kind. And actually by drinking the tea and then saying, like, oh, do you drink tea at home? Yeah, I do, but I drink it with oat milk. I can actually have a conversation about why I do that rather than just rejecting them as a human being. So one of the things in stoicism is it depends always on the circumstance, the other circumstance I give. If I could eat a goat soup, for example, and prevent a tribal warfare, if they said, look, if you eat this soup, I, you know, I will, I promise that I will not attack the other group. And then I should, you know, I should say, okay, if that is really what it takes to stop a, a war, that's what I'll do. Um, and I've had plenty of examples where, you know, personal ones, when my mom was really anti-vegetarian, she was really upset in the beginning. And so I said, look, mom, I tell you what, there's only one meat that I'll eat. And she said, what is it? I said, your Sunday dinner, because I know you work really hard on it. I know it takes you three hours and a half and I'll eat that when I visit you three times a year. 
And then she changed literally overnight. She went out and bought me loads of like vegetarian options and told my dad that I wasn't going to eat meat anymore, only her dinner. So she felt like it was really like special mum. She always tells people my son's vegetarian, but he eats my dinner. You know, so she she completely changed from being really, she wasn't aggressive because my mum's not an aggressive person, but she was very upset. She actually felt that I didn't care about her anymore. And she took it really, really personally. Like, oh, you don't like our values and you don't care about our family time and things like that. She was, she just went into like this, you must, this rejection must be a rejection of, of the family uh, rather than a rejection of the meat. So once I just said, look, if it, if it means like eating, I said to myself, if it means eating meat three times a year, and suddenly, you know, not causing a massive issue to my family and having my mum tell everyone that vegetarianism is fine, as long as, you know, you have some kind of, you know, love and attention to the Sunday dinner, that's great. And so she's actually become more vegetarian herself, she says, because she doesn't feel that it's so aggressive because she felt that she felt that vegans tend to be aggressive people in her in her mind, right? And some of them might be, but that was the kind of, you know, she'll, she'll watch the news and that's the kind of thing that'll come up. Not, it won't be the gentle vegan is like being very kind to people, it'll be the vegan is very aggressive to people and attack somebody for some reason. So that's in my own life. And people who are very sort of less stoic in their vegan attitude might be like, no, you've sold yourself out. I have had that. Uh, I can't believe that you would just, you know, you would have set that on those circumstances. That cow still had to you know, suffer and you're, you're agreeing with that. But no, I'm not agreeing with that. But why, you know, my mum is suffering and I live in the real world and I, do, I don't buy meat for myself. I wouldn't buy meat for somebody unless they couldn't, literally couldn't go out to the supermarket and get themselves. But I always feel that if you want someone to be vegetarian or vegan, then cook them a vegan or vegetarian meal. That's the fastest way to make sure that they don't eat meat. It's not a case of uh, virtue signaling or being very strong handed with them and tell them that they must, they want to be stoic, they must be more vegan or more vegetarian or transition. It's more like telling them, okay, here are the virtues. You said you said you want to live according to nature. You said that you value justice. You said you value self-control. Do you think that maybe eating less meat would be a, an example of self-control? Do you think that, you know, being a little bit kinder when it comes to animal welfare would be linked to justice you think it might be wise to consider strongly how we treat other animals do you think there might be wisdom in that and they can make their own decisions because stoicism is about asking other people questions and having a dialectical a socratic debate rather than telling somebody what they should do and i am hoping you have to tell me if that came across in the paper or not because we were very strong enough to say that veganism was stoic, stoic because it's not Right. It's a question of how are you going to apply the virtues? How are you going to change your life? How can you benefit yourself? And just being mindful of, okay, what are the negatives? What are the positives rather than all Stoics must X? You know, uh, that, that's not going to be a great way to to go about things. So just having more of an open inquiry about it and welcoming conversation, I think is good. And a lot of the benefits too. I, I think uh, one thing you talked about is a lot of the standard American diet. Some people refer to as SAD as the acronym is. It's a lot of food just um, pumped with sugars, a lot of unhealthy things. And especially on the extremes, if you're going to say talk about fast food, processed food, fried chicken, a lot of the stuff could just be tremendously unhealthy. So there can be some personal damage as well, not only talking about the community at large. Exactly. Um, I, I was going to ask you, um, what is it that you found most surprising in the paper? Because a lot of people said to me they found surprising that either that I didn't say we should be vegetarian or I didn't say that we should be vegan. People felt that I was going to say that. 
I shouldn't say I, I should say the, me and the co-authors, uh, they really felt like we were going to say, you should be vegetarian or you should be vegan, and we didn't. And they were like, you didn't say it. Did you find that surprising or, or that we didn't say it? Or you kind of, as you know me a little bit better than most people, uh, that you weren't surprised at all by that nuance? Or what, what surprised you in the paper? I, I wasn't expecting a, a definite conclusion of saying, oh, all people must do X. <laughs> I didn't think that would happen in there. But it was interesting to read about some of the environmental issues, mainly dealing with water, not only um, just eating fish and some of the consequences that could come with that, but also how water is used to feed animals and how some of these habitats are destroyed by the overfishing and some of the impact there. Absolutely. I think that people seem to just restrict, let's say, um, meat and fish to the direct animal rights issues, because animal rights is complicated stone. So what we tried to do was say, actually, it's not only about that, it's also about the ecosystem. It's also about how we treat nature. So we gave the example of people tend to think only about the cow, not about the amount of water that is required to produce the hamburger. And oh, not about, they tend to think about, again, how we treat, treat the chickens. And if we just treat them better, it would, be, it would be fine. But yeah, that may be true, but the amount of area that we need to allow chickens to run free as such, right? It's so much more than if we just ate, um, crops, arable crops directly. So a lot of people, again, would say, yeah, but then you have the issue of soya and, you know, vegans can eat soya and soya destroys the rainforest, for example. And I'm saying, yes, it can do if you plant it in a poor location, but 70% of the soya that is consumed in the US is for beef, cattle and uh, pork farms. And that, that really stops the argument dead. But it's, it's because in order to decide whether something is a virtuous action or not, or at least allows us to progress towards virtue, one has to understand the facts. So yes, we do operate in that we, we are stoics say that we should live according to nature. But if we don't know what the, what the facts are, what does that mean? So let's say um, we have 7 billion to 8 billion people on the planet. Now, if we had 1 billion people on the planet, it would be a different argument, right? Because you wouldn't really necessarily have to argue the case about the land area. So you say, okay, but now we have seven to eight billion, then the amount of land that we require is even more than we would if we had one billion. And we need to give those animals more space than we suggested previously, because now we're saying that we don't want to put them in cages because they can't live according to nature, right? So the simple answer is not just to let them run free. If you then say, well, what about the wild animals? Because then you say, what about the wild animals? Now we've got all free <laughs> and the chickens are running free, you know, within reason. And now it's brilliant and they're all happy. And now we have no tigers and we have no elephants and we have no giraffes and we have no, you know, wild ferrets or bulls or mice because now all the, all the cattle are running free. That's the, pro that's the other problem that don't, people don't really think about. Like, okay, we'll just let them run free. Then and the issue is intensive farming. And that is one set of issues. But to then say, okay, so we let them all run free and there's lots of cows, as, you, as we all know. Then what do we do with the wild animals? Do they have a right to... To live? Do they have a right to live according to their nature? Because if we let all these cows run free, the answer is they wouldn't be able to. So then you start to say, oh, this is problematic because it's not just that I have to take care. I don't have an obligation only towards farm animals, but I have an obligation to all of nature because I am rooted in the logocentric viewpoint that says everything needs to live according to nature. And my, the way that I enact or act upon virtue is by understanding that. And even if I don't believe in the state of God, for example, I can still say, well, I still need to live according to those facts. And those facts 
dictate what is fair. Because again, if we only had 1 billion people on the planet, the amount of cows that we would need, even if we ate meat a lot, would be less than we do if we want to feed everyone with the same amount of um, beef. So this is the other issue because people were saying to me, oh, well, what about those parts of land that, you know, that you can't grow arable crops on? You know, we can put cows there. I go, yeah, what about the animals that live there? Do they not have a right to live there? Because they can't live in the lowlands because that's where we have the arable crops. And now you're telling me they can't live on the highland either because now you want to have the cows there. So there's, there's a balance there. So I try to tell people, okay, if you eat meat once a week or fish once a week, that's not, that's not a major issue. But the problem is most people don't eat it once a week. They eat this food once a day. And this is where you have to start saying, well, what does self-control mean? Does that make sense, Justin? Right. And it's the demand from people, too, because if more people opted out, then there wouldn't be the demand for raising all these animals and all these factory farms and all of these scenarios. So if people were able to change their decisions there, then there wouldn't be as much destruction. Sometimes I hear, oh, well, it's just a drop in the bucket, right? Oh, if I opt out, what's that going to do? That's only one person. They're still doing it as it's it doesn't really seem to be addressing the issues anyway when people give objections like that absolutely and then you say well we have a moral obligation and again i give an example like imagine you're an american football fan and you're a seattle fan right and number 12 is the fan you never think oh what happens if i'm the only fan there that never crosses your mind right you go because you think that i don't know sixty thousand fans will also join you most of which will be on your side you don't sit there and go, oh, maybe I don't go to the football match because I'm the only one who turns up. Oh, what would happen <laughs> if I'm the only one? And then actually the irony is if you were the only one, you'd be the most important fan there because you'd be the only only fan there. So you'd be the only fan cheering on. And actually your presence would be even more significant because it would it would provide an excellent example of how to be a fan. Right. So people have this sort of attitude, but when you apply it to anything else, like what happens, you know, when you go to work, you don't think, oh, what happens if the train doesn't run? Or what happens if my car doesn't start? You still get up and dressed. And then you go, wait a minute, my car isn't starting. And then you make decisions based on that. But before even people think about being vegetarian or vegan, they're like, no, it wouldn't make a difference. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. Like, why don't you, where is the step where you've made the effort? You've worked out like what the facts are and you've realized that your moral integrity is not dependent on what other people do. I mean, oh my God, my Jacksonville Jaguar t-shirt on today, for example. There's not many fans of Jacksonville Jaguar. There's only about 800,000 people in, Jack in Jacksonville, and they probably support Miami Dolphins, but they used to in the 80s. And just because my team is bad doesn't mean I stop supporting them. If I'm a true fan, even if they're awful, which they've been awful of late, I still care, you know, within the framework of, okay, this is a sport that I like. So even if nobody else were vegetarian or vegan, and it was just me and you, it doesn't mean that it's not valid from a moral perspective. If I have integrity as a Jacksonville Jaguar fan, I don't walk around with an open door. Well, now it's a Las, Las Vegas uh, Raiders shirt on because they happen to be winning, or a Kansas City shirt. I don't change because it's convenient to me because I want to look like a winner. It's more like, where, what's important to me? What do I value? And where is my path towards eudaimonia? And I would say that eating, according to Masonius Rufus, is an integral part to Eudaimonia, because he would say, how can you make poor decisions three times a day about what you eat? The irony is all the things that we can control, food is one of them because it's, as an adult, I would definitely say as a child difficult, you choose what you cook, you choose what you put in your mouth, you choose with, you know, within you know, a range because there's some things you like and some things you don't like. You choose for the most part what you do within certain restrictions. People say, okay, what happens if I'm allergic to all vegetables, right? I only know one case of a person who was literally, they, all they could eat was meat and mushrooms. They were literally allergic. 
to uh, vegetables and their parents are really upset because they're a vegetarian and this person had basically ate meat once a day in the morning and ate nothing else he couldn't even drink like milk like he drank milk and like water and stuff he couldn't even have like an orange juice or anything and that's the only person that i've ever met or, or no, i met the parents of that had that situation and i said what does that mean for him he said, can't go out can't go to the restaurants can't do anything can't be contaminated he's literally at home eating this meat in the morning and he can't really eat anything else so in his case, should he be should he be vegetarian? Well, absolutely not. He would die. So he's not got a moral obligation because he has no alternative. So I try to show people stories about when you have different choices, and then you make choices according to your desire to live according to nature, live according to the virtues that you want to make manifest in your life. If you can't, if you have no choice because you have no money and you eat what you're given because you went to a soup kitchen, there's no moral obligation on you. We always go to the extreme. What happens if, if I was in that situation, if you were in that situation, I'm sure you'd eat a chicken soup if you have nothing else to eat. But that's not, stoicism doesn't say that, okay, just because you have to eat a chicken soup because that's all you've got, that you're, more, you know, you're morally a bad person. No, it does say that if you have choices and you know facts and you live according to facts and according to nature, then perhaps this is not the best route. Right. It's when we have the choices that that's where morality really comes in. No one's going to be upset with prisoners for failing to donate to charitable organizations if they don't have the money and they're in jail or, you know, the lion kills the gazelle. Are people going to say, oh, you're a terrible lion. How could you do something like that? Because we don't think that that choice is there. But for us, well, if we have the reasonable amount of money, we have the means to do this and make some changes, then that seems to be a better way to go forward. And it doesn't always have to be very expensive either. I mean, maybe if you're going to buy these really expensive meat substitutes and you're going to buy this specialty food, okay, well, maybe the gluten-free section's going to be more expensive than the other ones, for example, and some people might not be able to afford that. But there might even be inconsistencies there where some people are spending a lot of money eating out. And instead, they could save some of that money, they could budget, they can figure it out or find some other ways to save, I would think, in many circumstances. I mean, absolutely. As a student, I remember, I mean, I'm talking now a while back, about more than 10 years ago now, people say, how come you can afford organic? You're a student, so I don't drink, don't drink alcohol. And you can imagine how much students spend on alcohol, right? So I said, if you take what you spend on alcohol a week and you remove that because you no longer drink, then that extra 20 pounds was in the UK would actually give you the organic food that I'm eating. And they were like, oh yeah. So it, it's, it's just a question of priorities. And stoicism is about questioning what are my priorities and why are they my priorities? Because it's not enough to just know what those priorities are. So a principle is only a principle when it costs you, right? It's easy when, because you know, say, let's say Burger King has made it easy for you because they've offered you a vegan burger, right? It's much more difficult when you are saying, oh, I have to buy a pressure cooker and I have to cook beans because I can't afford to buy the bean cans because that's expensive, but I can buy a whole, you know, dry beans and use a pressure cooker. I have to learn that. And I have to make, you know, quote unquote sacrifices. It's a lot easier when somebody makes makes decisions for you. But stoicism isn't about having the easy route always. Now it can be because there's nothing wrong with the easy route if that aligns well with living according to nature and working toward, working towards eudaimonia. But nothing in stoicism is supposed to be easy just because it's the right thing to do. On the contrary, normally things that are the right thing to do are difficult because there's always there's always a company that's willing to sell you more processed food at a cheaper price than 
you know, of nice fresh lettuce that's organic, that has really, you know, grown slowly and respected the soil and and respected the other animals. So there's lots of pesticides everywhere that's killing, you know, lots of insects and therefore lots of birds who then eat the insects that are contaminated. It's a lot more difficult to put that effort into grow that lettuce than just spray everything. Now that's a challenge because it does does it mean that organic is is the solution? And we said in the paper it depends, right? You don't just if you're eating organic to prove a point to your neighbours that, that you have more money than them, then eating organic is actually vicious, right? In that example, because your intention is just to show off. You're not doing it because you care about the birds. You're doing it because you care about what your neighbours think of you. So again, it those always ask you to peel back that layer to really look at your decision why. You're doing something and people said to me but that's exhausting you know they say the road to hell is paid with good intentions because it's easy they say it's a really broad way to go down not i don't use like the word using hell but let's go with it uh, it's easy to fall into hell it's easy to, to backslide a lot of christians would use that terminology and it's a lot harder to navigate you know a, a tough path you know a path that's not laid out for you easily that you have to to search for because eudaimonia is not an easy path it's something that you and i have to search for no, no eudaimonia just appears and you just follow the matters. So it was always like that. In fact, there's, a, there's an action joke where they said Zeno is excellent because he teaches, he teaches hunger and he still gets students. And I think that's really interesting that, especially in the Roman period with the elite where they were about eating and then throwing it back up. So you could even say that Romans found that really interesting that uh, you know, Zeno people would uh, preach hunger and still have students. But, but people forget about this in studies that food is so fundamental to stoicism because it comes from the cynic uh, background where, where food isn't isn't the be all and end all. Whereas in the Roman situation, which is why Marcus says, you know, remember that a fish you know, is just a dead fish, it's just it's just a dead animal, even though it looks good. And that's why he's reminding that because of the whole sort of frivolous and um, very sort of ostentatious way of looking at food. And he's reminding himself, this is just a dead bird. Whereas in the in the Hellenistic period, back when Zeno's around, it's quite popular to be a you know be a cynic and restricts your food to what is strictly necessary. So it's quite interesting that Stoicism has these sort of two extremes, like the very elite of the elite to you know a, a failed merchant who who adopts a, a philosophy that says that we don't really need material wealth at all. So I, I found that interesting, and that's why I find it very surprising that there was so much pushback in the general public towards these ideas of being a little bit more thrifty and being a little bit more considerate. I, I was very surprised by that. Why do you think there is so much pushback when it comes to having a vegetarian or vegan diet? Yeah, I hear a lot of pushback. It's about, oh, well, meat tastes so good, I wouldn't want to give it up, or oh, well, that's just what I've always done. It would just be such a big change or they don't see that the impact is there. It's like, well, is eating really all about the taste? And can't you just get the good taste from something else anyway? At least I'll use different flavors, different sauces, and maybe ultimately the thing is, well, maybe we can have fun and joy and all this other stuff in other areas of life that it's just not food. I mean... Are, are people really saying, oh my gosh, oh, that tastes so good, and they're eating it, and maybe it's like a 15 or 20 minute ordeal, and then like an hour later, maybe they're still hungry, or they're bloated, or whatever happens to be the case. Maybe it's that people are thinking of the moment, and not so much about the future, not so much about the consequences, not so much about 
the long term. And it's interesting because I often hear a correlation where people are talking about, oh, I like this, I like that. They spend all this money and then they don't have money. And then they're stressing about, oh, how am I going to pay the bills? What am I going to do next? And the the YOLO lifestyle, right? It, it doesn't seem to be so great. It doesn't seem to be as good as it's cracked up to be, where instead, if people can be more frugal, they can be more mindful of the situation and think more of the long term and find that joy and just not having to worry about so much and having that independence rather than just being dependent on on other things. How many people I hear, they're saying, oh, well, I don't like my job. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like my area in life. And they feel that they're just stuck because they're in this position. They're doing the same things over and over again, and they're not improving. They've, they've given up. Maybe there can be a learned helplessness in some cases there. They think that they can't improve their position, but there are many passages in the Stoic text that talks about making gradual improvement and just trying to have some goals and moving toward them to find a better station in life. I think you're absolutely right. I find it actually it's interesting you say about pleasure. because I, It's not a very popular example, but I, I give an example. Imagine I really like to have sex with animals and it gives me immense pleasure. But no, if I said that out loud and actually meant that I did that, people would be horrified. But it gives me so much pleasure. Like it gives me 20 minutes of pleasure every time I have sex with this animal. You wouldn't believe the pleasure that I have. You should try it. Like you're missing out. Like really, you don't know what you're doing. Like this animal, it's, it's just amazing. Like I don't know why you can't see that. Obviously, I mean, it's just natural. I mean, our ancestors did it. So what is the issue? Like, what is the problem? If I do it, I'm not causing anybody else any problem. It's, you know, it just it's crazy and the funny thing or the weirdest thing is is that there may be some pleasure that that one poor animal gets right if you kill the animal what pleasure can that animal get none it's absolutely it's absurd that we are so much about pleasure but if i gave the example that i just gave people would be horrified but i just use the same reason that they give me about why they eat me oh i really like it i couldn't give it up it's too nice but if i gave the same example about that particular individual animal They'd be like, you should be in prison. Why should I be in prison for giving, you know, doing this particular action to an animal, which doesn't kill it, which doesn't torture it in the same way as I, I you know, I have an animal, I put, I put it in a very restricted space. I restrict this animal from having any interaction with, natural interaction with their calf. I, I, then, t I then breed them over and over again until they're exhausted. And then I sell their carcass off, to, off for like, you know, cat food or something. And I, I find that ludicrous that people would be more offended by the fact that I would, you know, have my favorite animal that I would love entirely. And I would, you know, take them for walks and they'd have loads of space. And they might even have puppies that I then give to family members. They would find that more atrocious because there's this cognitive dissonance that happens. There's this taboo of, and I, and I you know, there's, I'm not saying for one instant that we should open this taboo up. No, it's a good reason that we don't do this. And I think it's completely wrong. I would have my favorite animal and do the action. But equally, I see it actually just as wrong, or if not more wrong, uh, to the animal to kill it, to torture it throughout its entire life and kill it. And this is, this is the cognitive dissonance, that we can have this pleasure argument, but if I have this argument with you uh, about how much I like to spend time with my animal for the pleasure, you know, for the pleasure it brings me sexually, that's, a that's a, an offense. That's, that's a that's a go to prison or at least have no friends and be ostracized for the rest of your life. And I think if people understood it like that, that this pleasure argument is actually, it's flawed, then they would stop using it. And I'd say, okay, even if you've got immense pleasure of it, you really have to justify it because you're killing an animal. 
same way if I said oh I can't free my slave because they're such a good chef the amount of pleasure that this slave brings me when they cook my favorite uh, vegetarian lasagna you'd say hang on a minute you're putting you're prioritizing your taste buds over the freedom of someone you've enslaved and nobody or very few people in this world would you know would agree with me if I claim that my lasagna was more important than the freedom of the slave and very few would agree with you know would agree with me that I should be able to have pleasure with a particular animal as long as I look, as long as I look after the animal in every other aspect no one would agree with me but yet we have this multi-billion industry that just sends cows chickens pigs some goats to to torturous conditions concentration camps really and just uses them and doesn't see any any value in them at all and Stones would say, and I mean Aristotle, that our that because we are, you know, one step up on the ladder, we have the obligation they don't have. It's actually the other way around that we are so sentient and we are able to make these choices that we should not lower ourselves to say, well, we're like lions, we have no choice, we have to eat meat. To say, actually, we do have choices. To me, it's the complete opposite that our humanity enables us to distinguish between. What is, what is absolutely necessary from a health perspective and what is a taste bud preference. We can do that. A cat can't do that. And yet we, well, when we have the opportunity to really look and reshape our food industry, we always fall down to the, you know, the lowest bar, the lowest denominator, where a lion eats meat and no one criticizes that lion. And I would say, yeah, lions also rape and then kill all the offspring of previous lions. If we want to use a lion argument, then we should use it consistently. And then when people were like, oh my gosh, that's awful. And we're just inconsistent. It's this one taboo that we're consistently up against. And I think if we eat meat once a week, that would diminish substantially this issue because I think the animals could roam free and they could, if we drink milk only say once a week, they could give milk to their calf because it would be, it wouldn't be restricting it to the extent that we are. That's why I don't think that vegetarian and veganism is, is the stoic diet. I think certainly restriction of meat and milk so that it's fair to everybody involved is stoicism in practice. Yeah, it seems that the pleasure distinction is pretty arbitrary that, oh, you could have it in one place, but not in others. And yeah, maybe it's a lot of taboo that people wouldn't say in some area, well, hey, I can buy meat at the grocery store, but yet if my dog dies, then I wouldn't eat it. Uh, people wouldn't go about that. So maybe they would say, oh, well, there's that connection there that I've formed that I would just feel really weird about it, so I wouldn't do it. So maybe if you don't know the animal, it's out of sight, out of mind. Maybe that's the, the reasons that some people are giving here along with the tradition or just not really caring or thinking that it's the the biggest deal and i find that it's become easier over time too especially when traveling especially when not at home to find substitutions even when i was in las vegas before the pandemic i went to many restaurants there and they just had a vegetarian menu and a vegan menu or different areas i was at cheesecake factory a few weeks ago and they had vegan salads that were there and many other impossible burger other options like that. So it seems like restaurants, it seems like the rest of the world is gradually moving toward that. And maybe because it's cheaper for them to produce this, maybe because there's the demand, maybe there's a list of factors coming together where they want to do that to give people some more options for their diets, more options for eating as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that concerns me about like these vegan burgers is that it basically cuts out the middleman. So you also you also have this question whether you you want to eat, say, vegan burgers every day when when basically the wealthier are getting even wealthier. And that's the, the biggest challenge to show people the reason why you don't know about this animal welfare issues is because up until now, there was no money involved in, in making a vegan burger because it was very much more like what they might call quote-unquote hippie, but now it's more a lab-based thing so that people like Leonardo DiCaprio have the money in investing in it, Bill Gates is investing in it. So there's now this sort of almost vested interest in now highlighting these animal welfare issues. So stoicism calls you to dig deeper and ask, why aren't these questions being raised? The only reason that we are, you know, is out of sight, out of mind, is because the companies such as Tyson Food, they don't want you to know that they have a monopoly over all the chicken. They don't want you to know how um, people are being treated. And that's one thing that COVID has, has highlighted in the US at least, about the way that meat is prepared. A lot of people become sick, right? There's been states where the entire COVID issue is linked to one processing plant. And normally those people are immigrants, so they're frightened to speak out. Uh, some of them illegal immigrants, so extremely frightened to speak out. So I think COVID has shown like the, the nature of the supply chain and the fact, for example, that, that legally it was more about reopening the plants to protect, say, vested interest and monetary interest than protecting the health of people. Now, that's a different uh, argument, but I do think it, it, it means that we need to consider why don't we know this? I think people do care. I think they would switch off. But if they, if they saw reality, if it was presented to them in, in a factual way, I think most people would say, oh, I, maybe I should be vegetarian because when I've asked people, would you kill a cow to eat it? They'd be like, no, I'd be vegetarian if I had to kill it myself. Um, so I think it's, it's just one step further along going, okay, so if you if you know how they're being treated, would, you, would it make a difference to you? I think most people would say yes. And I think people in the West are waking up because it's no longer linked to a status issue. Whereas, for example, in China, I used to live there. I asked people what they wanted to be when they're older, and they said fat, which made me laugh. And I said, why do you want to be fat? And they said, oh, because it, then it looks like I have money. More men than women, and there's, you know, they can be more choosy. So women's parents tend to say, pick a person who has money. So people said, I want to be fat because it shows I have money. So there's this one kid who was eating KFC every day, literally every day during the summer, so he could look a bit fat. Because being, being thin in, in certain places in China means that you're poor. And this is, this is the only thing that I'm concerned about, that whilst in the West we're starting to say, well, eating meat is not a status thing because it had, had been, or it's only the elite that ate meat every day. Now it's almost the other way around, that it's an elite thing to be like, I don't know, living in Austin, Texas and having an impossible burger, right? Again, strokes can't be tricked into, into these social status things or, or shouldn't be tricked into, they could be, they shouldn't be. And politically, they should also think, oh, why, aren't, why don't I know this information? Whose interest is it? Why suddenly now that we can sell vegan burgers for a lot of money, because well, you and I know they're very expensive, why now is the animal welfare issue becoming a becoming one? So Stokes, again, it asks, it asks you to peel back the layer, to ask yourself questions that other people may not be asking. Right, and now I'm seeing the marketing thing has shifted too, especially with Beyond Burger I've seen here in the United States where they're marketing as, oh, look, it tastes the same. And I've seen the price comparable in many places too, Atlantic City one option some casinos will have restaurants like bill's burger or it was ac burger company where they'll just give you the the option and it's not much more expensive or very similar price 
So some places are doing better about it rather than, oh, going to Dunkin' Donuts and they're going to charge you 75 cents extra for the almond milk. <laughs> it seems to be outrageous there as there's some incentive there. So I, I think some of the marketing is changing there. Some people are saying, oh, well, hey, if it tastes the same and I don't know the difference, then I'll go with that. That's not a problem. So maybe some people are moving towards that because if it's super bland, then maybe people will just opt out and, oh, that's too much of an inconvenience for me so maybe there's some progress i agree uh, uh, i do say to stoics or people that want to practice stoicism they if it's just if you do it just because it's easy and convenient you're not really engaging with it but there's no virtue there right easy and convenient doesn't necessarily you, it's basically you align you align by accident you're like the fool who by accident does the right thing but has no idea what they're doing so that doesn't make you less foolish to do the right thing because it's now easier now the fact that it makes it more e easier means that you have even greater obligations so whereas like 10 years ago you could say well i don't know a vegan restaurant or i don't have a vegan option uh there's nothing i can do you your obligation is greater but your your walk towards virtue is not linked to how easy or difficult something is. It's, I did everything I could, I made the biggest effort I could, and yet there was literally, I was in, when I was in Cuba, for example, it was very difficult to be uh, vegetarian. Uh, and I, I did it, but it was very, very hard because I decided I would live the Cuban lifestyle for two weeks. I didn't go to like a tourist area where the food was plenty. I basically lived like a Cuban for two weeks. And it was really, really difficult. Because you'd say, well, what options do you have? And it was just like, oh, we have one veg vegetable we could put on your pizza. I go, okay, what's that? Pepper. I was like, oh, I have a pepper pizza. So even in that case, it was very, very difficult to be vegetarian in Cuba. I did it because I thought a principle is a principle, right? If it, if it doesn't cost you, then you don't really know it's a principle. It's just convenience. So again, I, I, I encourage strokes, yes, if it's convenient then to do it, but to remember that virtue isn't built on convenience. Virtue is built on coherent and consistent decisions to do the right thing because you have the facts. Now, I just want to make one caveat. Like, it doesn't mean that you have to do all the research that I did right, to, to make a decision. That's why I present it with my co-authors in that paper so that you don't have to do the hours and hours of work. But now there's almost like no excuse for strikes to go, well, I have no idea what the contemporary strike diet might be according to facts. But the other reason that we wrote it to put it all together, to like you, know, you yourself had all the evidence that we provided to say, okay, I am vegan. And now I know the more, you know, why uh, I might choose to go that way. So it's not about finding all the answers, but finding out who you can trust. So in terms of health, I would say like Dr. Michael Greger, How Not to Die, very good book. Uh, most vegans have read it. And it would encourage me to you know, continue to be vegetarian for health reasons. But I didn't write the health paper because I'm not an expert. I'm not a medical doctor. So I don't know the best cause of action on why that kind is environmental. But I wanted to tie that together because a lot of times we just talk about health, but we don't talk about the health of the, of the planet. And when we put an extra circle of concern to conclude the environment, I think it's inherently obvious that health doesn't just, isn't just restricted to us or our family, but the wider world. Good. So we're coming up on time here. How can people find you online? How can people find your paper? I'll link it in the show notes some information, but for those just listening, how can they find you? And I think the best way is uh, at Kai Whiting on Twitter or stoickai.com. I always- And if you could spell that? Stoic, S-T-O-I-C, stoickai, K-A-I. Stoickai.com, I read all my emails and reply to all of them, even if, even if they're slightly rude. So <laughs> please try not to be rude, but yeah, I will reply to you even if you are rude, uh, because I think that 
engagement happens when we find the common ground. So again, I'm not saying anyone should be something, but certainly questioning is stoic. And then those questions and the answers you subsequently give should lead you to the diet that you feel helps you move towards eudaimonia. So the challenge here is not to eat a certain way, but to certainly ask certain questions that, that you come to your own conclusions. Good. And that's how might a stoic eat in accordance with nature and environmental facts. Thank you, Justin, for having me. All right. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com for past episodes and social media links. Support my efforts through Patreon, linked on my website, to receive special perks, including having upcoming podcast guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at hurdygurdytravel.com, that's H-U-R-D-Y-G-U-R-D-Y, hurdygurdytravel.com, to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at next to no cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Thanks to John Bartman, who offered free consultation and audio edits for episodes 51 through 63. Thanks to Phil Giordana from the symphonic metal group Fairyland, whose music was included in past episodes but now removed because YouTube has been flagging my videos with copyright claims, even though Phil agreed to share the music. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.